Um, Lord, you're kind. Thank you for the way you've shown faithfulness. Again, your faithfulness reaches to the heavens and your loving kindness is immeasurable. We can't get a metric on it, but ultimately it's expressed in the death of your son. Thank you so much for these good things. Please um, create within us a clean heart in the heart of a child, the faith of a child. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so tonight, Esther chapter 5, and boy, we're getting down to it when when it's really going to to break loose, the whole storyline. And this is what what the text says. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the courtyard, she obtained favor in his sight, or in Hebrew, she caused favor to be lifted up toward his face. Beautiful language. The king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the top of the scepter. Mercy extended, mercy acknowledged. Then the king said to her, what is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Up to half of the kingdom, it shall be given to you. Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, what is your request? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your wish? Up to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, my request and my wish is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, And if it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I wish, may the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king says. A second invitation to a banquet. So Haman went out that day joyful, pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, and went to his house, but he sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Zeresh is Persian and means perhaps gold or possibly disheveled hair. (laughs) How's that for a curious mix? Zeresh, we'll say it's gold. Then Haman told them of the glory of his riches. He's bragging to his wife and all his buddies. He told of all his glory, his riches, and his many sons, and every occasion in which the king had honored him and how he had promoted him above the officials and servants of the king. Haman also said, even Esther the queen, let no one except me 
come in with the king to the banquet, which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a wooden gallow, 50 cubits high made. And in the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman. So he had the wooden gallows made, 50 cubits high. That's high. Because a cubit is about, Andrea, 18 inches. Uh, the tip of your, the average man's elbow to the tip of his finger. Cubit. Okay, that long. 50. This is quite the gallows. Right, so let's walk through chapter 5 just for a minute. Um, now it came about on the third day that Esther put on a roll. There's a couple comments here. One, she said three days prior. If I perish, I perish. I am born for such a time as this. I've got to face it. She fasted three days, prayed, and then she put on her royal robes. Uh, we don't know much about how she potentially made herself beautiful. Uh, at this point, I'm sure her primary attendant, uh, the chief eunuch, attending to her and her entourage would not let her go in frumpy clothes, unkept hair, and no makeup on. I'm sure she was stunning, I'm sure. Uh, the text does not say her beauty gripped the king. We don't know. But she did put on her royal robes and dress appropriately for what she believed was an appeal that could potentially set up the saving of an entire race of Jews in that area, entire people group. And she stood in a position where the king could see her. It was very strategic. And of course, the king did see Esther. And as the language says, that there was something about her that caused favor, uh, grace, acceptance, uh, uh, mercy, love. In Hebrew, chesed that somehow raised up and found itself in the face of Esther, and it was recognized by the king. He extends the scepter. Mercy extended. Mercy acknowledged. She touches the top of the scepter. She gets to live. Wow, she did it. She's not going to perish. I imagine she was, she was sweating bullets, as they say, right? She lives. And then the king said, what's troubling you, Queen Esther? What is your request? Uh, the language, and it's repeated twice, up to half the kingdom, it shall be given to you. It's, that's actually a gesture that's common of oriental custom, uh, in, in ancient or, oriental culture, I should say, meaning the king is not going to give half the kingdom. It's a gesture of, I'm taking seriously your request. I will honor you. Up to half the kingdom. Come on, give me what you got. Um, it was an oriental custom. Yet we shouldn't take it as though he was willing to forfeit half his kingdom to a female. Not going to happen. 
And uh, of course, she makes this odd appeal that I've prepared an elaborate banquet to honor Haman. It's the singular. I'm inviting you, king, to join in a banquet for Haman. It's really interesting, the language there. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that she had prepared. And again, the king asks, what's your request? Up to half the kingdom. Come on, what do you want? And she said, I want to do this party again. Interesting. She's honoring Haman. Honoring Haman twice for this exclusive, exclusive banquet. Lots of drinking, lots of wine, abundant wine. And again, uh, this idea of favor, verse 8. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, and do what I wish, she's setting him up. May the king and Haman come to the banquet that I've prepared again. Another one, right. All right, now what is interesting uh, that I want you to, to, to take note of, uh, verse 9, Haman is thrilled with the prestige and the glory and the splendor of his treatment. His ego is inflated and he goes to, to um, in his own pomp and joyful gait, goes out and there's Mordecai. And the rule is, when you say Haman, you bow. You bow in honor Haman. And of course, Mordecai refuses. And there is bad, uh, uh, Matt, you're not aware of this, but Haman, the only, the only thing we really know about this guy is that he's a relative of an old king named Agag. And Agag was evil. And when Samuel told Saul, when you go into the city, there is a unique ban on the city. Everything dies. This, this, this city is to, have to receive no mercy. Saul disobeys. He keeps prestigious people, prestigious livestock, etc., and, uh, and does not execute a very evil king, King Agag. Samuel finds out about it, and this is the, really begins the undoing of Saul. And uh, Samuel, single-handedly, this old man executes Agag in front of Saul. And it's done as an act of worship. Now, our brains, we don't get our mind around that. We don't, we're not Hebrews. That's what the text of Scripture says in 1 Samuel. That's rough. Well, the bloodline of Agag, some survived. And Haman is one in the bloodline. He's one of those people. And he hates the Jews because they did that to his great-great-grandpa, you know, great-grandfather, whoever that was. And Mordecai does not like Haman, and Haman does not like Mordecai. All right, there is bad blood between these people groups. Right? We need to appreciate that. So he goes to his um, his buddies, tells them all the glories, <laughs> and isn't it fascinating? I'm so happy. Look at my clothes. Look at my kids. Look at all that I have. All the money the king is paying me. I'm like a rich, rich man, and I'm highest in the in the honor scale. And then he says. Except one thing, <laughs> when I see Mordecai, and by the way, the text says, when I see Mordecai, the Jew, Haman knows, he knows what's going on. This is a chance to make a move on the Jews. He knows that when I see Mordecai, the Jew, he doesn't honor me. And it, 
ruins everything good in my life. Now let's let's put let's put Haman on, on the psychologist's couch. What does it say about Haman? You know what? I've got more boys than anybody in my where I live, and I I am entertained by the queen and by the king. And wow, look at me! Everything's awesome in my life except when I see Mordecai. It just ruins everything. I can't enjoy life because there's Mordecai. What does it say about Haman? Is he bitter? Do you think? Chip in his shoulder, maybe. Grudge. Flat out hatred. It's a mess, huh? He's also got a flair for the dramatic. Yeah. He's a gossiper. He goes and he has to tell all his friends and everything. Everything. Yeah. It's like he, he has such a small ego that he has to like get his opinions regurgitated back to him. Yeah. In order to pump himself up. Yeah. Not good, huh? Great. <laughs> the story you can you see the setup forming it's just it's like the chess game is in motion esther makes a move haman is clueless makes a fatal move makes another fatal move and then it's checkmate you know so yeah fascinating so um Uh, no, it, it's it's founded. <laughs> There's a lot of history. Isn't it awful? Like, no, seriously, this is ugly. God telling the Jews, wipe out an entire people group and let no one live. Doesn't that sound like that's what Haman's saying to do to the Jews? Yes. This is gross. This is horrible. This is bad. This is ancient Mediterranean, Arab, Palestinian culture, Babylonian culture. It's a mess. It is a mess, you know. And yet, and we, who are followers of Jesus, whose father is Almighty God, who was alive and well in First Samuel, when, when he gave those orders, the creator of heaven and earth gave that order. Through Samuel as prophet. So we can't say, oh, wow, God was wrong. We can't say that. It's tough. The ethics of the Old Testament are harsh. They're very, very harsh. And a lot of people struggle with that. And in many, in fact, uh, this idea of religious-driven genocide, a lot of people say, well, if that's who God is, if that's who Yahweh is, I don't want him to do them. That's mean. That's just flat-out mean. You know? Okay. I understand. It's harsh. I know. And yet... We have theology stretched to this amazing capacity where Jesus said, hey, if you really want to get my father, get me, see me. And Jesus changes everything. You get Jesus showing radical mercy, beautiful mercy to the innocent and the abused and the marginalized and, and those who take advantage and all these things. But it's, it's the people who are dangerous on religious, political, social terms that Jesus comes down really, really hard on. He's, yeah, he's tough. He's tough. So. Okay. Is, is Haman a narcissist? Does he meet the criteria? No, probably not. You know, that's, that's dumping our world onto his world. But there is definitely ego going on here. 
So, um, in Zeresh, the golden woman says, hey, let's, let's build some really, you like dramatic, you like, you like big things, exciting things? 50 cubit high gallows. Goliath was nine cubits tall. This is way up there. Okay. All right. And for all the world to see. And they're made. Let's jump into uh, chapter six. During the night, next day, or that evening, I should say, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written what Mordecai had reported about Bigtana and Tarish, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers that they had sought to attack King Ahasuerus or Xerxes. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who is in the courtyard? And guess who's walking in? <laughs> Haman had just entered the outer courtyard of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai. Talk about God's timing. Um, so the king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the courtyard. And the king said, Have him come in. Haman then came in and said to the king, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, <laughs> Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Oh, rub the, the, the jar and the genie pops out. The psychology of this is I get to have what I want. What do I want to be publicly honored? Oh, so Haman said to the king, mm, but the man whom the king desires to honor, let's see, have them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse in which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal turban has been placed. Then order them to hand the robes and the horse over to one of the king's noble officials and have them dress the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, so it shall be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. Then the king said to Haman, quickly, take the robe and the horse just as you have said and do so for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fail to do anything of all that you have said. What's fascinating, I need to pause. How did the king know that was a Jew? Mordecai was a Jew. Either the writer inserts that after the fact because the king uh, hasn't made the connection necessarily. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. That's interesting. Uh, back at it, I would imagine that Haman's <laughs> got gut sick. Uh, maybe a little irritable bowel syndrome hit him. Maybe a bad migraine. 
a uh, little muscle tension headache, uh, something happened after he, pers- he says, this is what you should do to honor the king or honor, honor this man, thinking that he himself is going to receive this stuff. And then says, oh, by the way, one of the highest nobles of the king should be the one that gives him the robe, gives him the horse, puts on the turban, and then leads him about saying, this is how we honor the one who honors the king. And he was anticipating it was going to be his moment and the opposite happened. How gutsick did that make Haman? That Mordecai, the disgusting dog of a human known as a Jew, the one who, in his bloodline, killed his grandpa. You know, you're back on verse 4. You mentioned uh, hanging. Mine says, mine says uh, the king said, who is, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on Imp- the pole he had set up for impaling Yeah. I mean, yeah. Is this NIV? It is NIV. Yeah, I'm not even sure if that's word of God. I don't know, Andrew, what do you think? <laughs> I just went, wow. Thank you for laughing. Yeah. Uh, one of my professors in the seminary was on the, the translation team for that. <laughs> All right, so that's <laughs> good. Uh, we don't know. Yeah. You know, um, Bad either way. Uh, we do know that the, uh, the NAS doesn't translate it that way. But uh, there's a reference to hanging that's coming up. Now, that does not mean that that's entirely unfounded. You know, because we're almost thinking this is a Wild West scene and, mm-hmm. you know, Judge Parker at Fort Smith, the hanging judge. Is, you know, we get that scene in True Grit when that may not be fully the case, you know. But... Uh, but whatever it is, it's way up in the sky and it is ugly. Yeah. <laughs> whatever it is, right. But thank you, Bruce. So, so Haman uh, took the robe and the horse and dressed Mordecai. Oh, what a scene in a movie that would make. Eye-to-eye contact between those two men and putting the robe on his shoulders. Can you see him putting the face-to-face, Andrew, putting that turban on Mordecai's head? The tension that would have been, it'd be thick. And, I, and do you think, you know, Matt, you said Heyman's, you know, has a, has a taste for the theatrical. Now's a real good time to act like you're enjoying what you're doing, huh? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? Fake it till you make it, buddy. Fake it till you make it. Come on, hold on. Hold on. Get this done. Get this done. The plan's going to work. The plan's going to work. Roll with it. Roll with it. I just, oh, my goodness. The irony of this whole thing is so profound. And he led him on horseback. Picture Haman walking about the city square, guiding his horse, and verbally saying, Behold, this is what happens to the man who honors the king. So shall it be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate while Haman hurried home, I would imagine, mourning, with his head covered. Shame, language of shame, okay. Haman informed Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends of everything that had happened to him. Then the wise men, his wise men, and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, if Mordecai before you have begun to fall is of Jewish origin, you will not prevail over him, 
that will certainly fall before him. Now his wife is almost prophesying his death, his complete demise. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs eunuchs arrived and quickly brought Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. Poor fellow's exhausted. It's been a hard day, you know. I mean, no sooner can he can he start crying with his wife and his attendants that others come and say, "Come on, get up. We got to go to the banquet." Banquet. <laughs> I forgot about the banquet. You know, can you imagine the moment? And he's got to sit down. And that begins chapter seven. We'll we'll pause there. Okay. <clears throat> How do we move it into our world today? What are, what are some things that you noticed about the text that we could draw encouragement from? <clears throat> Let me, let's start with this. What about the dream, the king and the dream? Or, or the, uh, the um, loss of sleep? What do you think is going on there? He's troubled. Yeah, there's something, something's not right. You can't sleep. Yeah. So, what, what am I missing? What's, what's the word? Yeah. I mean, it's the one time where you actually see him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating, isn't it? So, and, and of course, the word God, the name God is not in the text, right? Anywhere. And yet, do you see the activity of God? How so? In this scene, in chapters 5 and 6. How do you see the activity of God here? I'm encouraged, Andrew, by the idea that God may be at work when I don't see it. Yeah, and here I am over here. I'm Mordecai, this bony old man, well, almost bony old man, and I'm struggling with my day and whatever it is I'm burdened with. And I think, God, God, God doesn't hear me. God, God's not looking down and giving me favor, you know. And God's saying... Be still. Be still and know that I am God, not you. And at the just right moment, this little Jewish girl who is evidently beautiful beyond description, who is born for such a time as this, is in position. Mordecai risks everything to recommend this little girl you know, be the king's wife, the risk of all of that. And things are starting to fall in place at Xerxes, who failed at Thermopylae. Is he feeling bad? What's, what's, why is he troubled? Something's not right. And he decides to go back and say, give me a scan of the, you know, my events, of my presidency, my kingship. Is there something that's not right? And they discover that no one honored Mordecai. Yeah. 
God is doing things in the life of Chris Perry, even though I can't see it. I think he's doing things in your life, uh, even though you can't see it. Bruce, can I put you on the spot? And the story between me and you today about that, what happened to you. This is really interesting what happened. Go ahead, Bruce. Want me to tell it? Yeah. Oh. About the phone call you, you got. Yeah, it was an email, actually. It was uh, just two days, two, three days ago, I was angry at God, and I was literally, did I tell you that? You did. Shaking my fists at him and yelling at him. And then I get, yesterday, I, out of nowhere, I'm like, where are you? I mean, what, what, what are you doing? What, you know? Thanks for the, thanks for the, it could always be better uh, uh, thing that we have as Christians. Can't, uh, I'm sorry, it could always be worse. Can't it always be better? And I mean, I'm like, I can do this better than you can. I'm just having this real meltdown of God. And then uh, uh, yesterday afternoon, I, my phone dings, and it's, it's Jackie Reagan from National Life of Life in Washington, D.C. Going, Bruce, we'd really like to have you come and and talk at uh, at the National Right to Life Convention this year in um, in June, and you know, as as a you know, being they heard they heard me speak at the Right to Life March here uh, this last January, and they want to have a they want myself and another person, maybe a third man. Men don't talk about this; they just don't. And uh, so that's. And of course, I, I I accepted immediately, and yeah, I mean I don't know what else you want me to say, but that's perfect. And it, can you appreciate this is a big deal? And I wanted to go get you know spoonfuls of dirt and, and go <laughs> throw them on so. <laughs> throw them on your head. Yeah. yeah. So it's a big deal to get asked to be a keynote speaker at the National Rights Life. Big deal. They're gonna red carpet. I mean, horses. It's just it's gonna be glorious. Wine. You, come on, Bruce. It's gonna be awesome. And, yeah, so, so he's invited to the big thing. Now, here's what he did not know. At about 8.40 this morning, I'm running a little bit late, and I'm bracing to get over here, and I'm trying to get a phone call done, and I'm on the phone with a counselor in Jonesboro who's battling. It's a Chris. I've got this lady. She's just about to give birth. Uh, she's a meth addict. And her previous baby was murdered by her husband, shaken to death. He's in prison. And I'm about to lose it. What do I do? And so we're dealing with that. And then, and then she says, and I got this other situation, and, you know, post-abortive males. And she's, and of course, ding, post-abortive male. I go, you know what? Uh, there's a couple in our church, Bruce and Janice Trice. They speak at the National Right to Life Convention and talk about post-abortive, uh, the male, the post-abortive male, and how males have to do that. I said those words at 8.49 this morning, meanwhile, and I had no idea. I just see God in that, you know. That's the grace of God. Isn't it beautiful? It's, 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 yeah. it's, I don't even have a good word for And you me. didn't see it coming, did you? Yeah. No. <laughs> Jay Greenland and I were just talking about the same thing in a little different context on the way over here today. So yeah. he's yeah. had some things happen in his life, and he's going, what? Yeah. So, yeah. So maybe be still and know that I am God uh, is a little more theologically sound than we at times give credit for, right? We can intellectually ascend it. Into, oh, yeah, yes, he's God. I am not. Trust him, he's at work. But then you see stuff like this with Bruce. Or 
You know, I know your stories are rich and meaningful too. Yeah. I, Bruce, I've got to remember that. So do I. Because I can go to a place like, God, come on. And I can run the universe better than that. What was that about? Where were you on that one? What's going on? You know. And, and I, boy, I've got to be careful. I am not God, right? No, I yeah. don't want to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 What's that? If you think Bruce Almighty is bad, Chris Almighty is horrible. <laughs> Hoy, talk about blowing the place up. Yeah, I think it's best that it's God Almighty, you know. And isn't there something about a child, a child's heart? I just trust mommy, trust daddy. Uh, uh, yeah, so hilarious story this morning. Um, um, uh, Lisa and I are blessed to have grandkids at our house and, and, and it really is amazing having three generations interacting together huh? Papa! Huh? it's great to have these three generations interacting together it's really great what would you say? and so I, I'm getting the kids up I sometimes prep breakfast and all those things Caroline's got a fever and I really think Caroline needs to stay home well, care, uh, little Isaiah, little Isaiah, he is so fearful of being alone. When he found out that Becca ruled, the queen ruled, Caroline shall stay home. Isaiah must go to school. Whoa! I mean, he had a meltdown. At least it probably lasted 20 minutes. And Rebecca kept her cool. Now, buddy, you know, you're going to be okay. I don't want to go. Now, buddy, it's going to be okay. She, she walked him through this torrent of fear and anxiety and separation anxiety. He can't be attached to mom at this moment, so the next best thing is Caroline. And I can face school with Caroline, but not without Caroline. And he spins it into this terrible thing. And now, buddy, it's going to be okay. And finally, he calms down and... and uh, at least as far as I know, he survived the day. Is that right? He's okay. Yeah, he made it. <laughs> Lesson learned. Courage gained. You know, life as we know it goes on. So, man, little kids, it's hard even for little kids to trust sometimes, you know. But, oh, to have that pure heart. Um, so, all right. Anybody else? Something you want to you share? There's a couple things that kind of yeah. Yes. Yes, we're going to be honored. The unworthy ones, yeah. Final word. I think this is really strategic. Chapter 5, verse 9. Haman went out that day joyful, pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, 
Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. I bet there was a tough exchange at that moment. Something, right? Verse 10, Haman controlled himself, however, and went to his house. You know what's interesting? Had Mordecai opened his mouth and got into a massive argument with Haman right then, the whole plan could have blown up. Mordecai strategically, evidently, didn't say anything. At least the text says he didn't say anything. He just refused to bow and honor Haman. And that was enough to enrage him. But wow, those strategic moments, it's really, really good for us to be quiet. When somebody else is raging, be quiet. Be quiet. Yeah. And, and that's what Mordecai does. Fascinating. Sometimes the best thing to do is say nothing at all. So, all right. <clears throat> In the night that Jesus was betrayed, they were sharing a meal. The text says they were all reclining. Is not necessarily the typical posture for eating, even among Jews. But it's significant because during Passover, the idea of reclining is associated with God is protecting you. Relax. Relax. They're reclining. And Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And there's so much confusion in that little comment. And evidently Judas is really very, very close to Jesus, perhaps right next to him, which, by the way, is an extension of honor. And they're all kind of reclining and reclining and kind of kicking back on an elbow kind of a thing. And, and they're like, what? And it's, uh, sh- surely, what? Not I, not I. Not, you know, what's going on? And the comment is made about is this the one in whom I share the dish? And Jesus takes bread and, like sop, he taps it in salt, friendship, a gesture, the basics, and, and gives it to Judas. And then it says, Judas gets up and leaves. And he had the money box, and he said, is he going to get some extra provisions for the Passover? Why did he leave? They're not getting it. Jesus does that, of course. And Jesus picks up a loaf of bread that's set aside uniquely at this point in the Passover. And there's already been at least four cups of wine in this whole series. And at this midpoint, he takes the bread and he, he... Eucharistia, which is literally in Greek, you is good, charis, joy, or thanks, good thanks, thanksgiving. He gives thanks. And he lifts the loaf up and he gives thanks. He says, God, thank you. you know. And he breaks the loaf. And he says, take from it, eat. Then he says that curious thing, this is my body, which is broken for you. And they all Eight. And then, after supper, 
he took the cup. And this is probably the fourth cup, the ending cup. And he's, we assume he gave thanks for it as well. It doesn't necessarily say that he did, but we assume. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take from it, all of you. I want you to drink this. All drink it all. And in all likelihood, it was a single goblet of wine. And they passed a single cup. It's singular in Greek. And they passed it around. And as they're doing that, he talks about how this is the new covenant which is given in his blood, which harkens back to the major prophets that says that God is going to do a new thing and create a people of a blood covenant in Israel. It's a new thing. It's really fascinating. Paul takes those two core ideas. This broken bread is his body. This wine is his blood. One is about his death. One is about a new covenant in the cup of suffering. And he said, we who follow Jesus now, when we do that, we're ingesting the reality that Jesus Christ has changed us and that he lived and died for us. And that when we do this, we're actually repeating and telling the death story again and again and again. And the death story is life. It's a life story, but it's a death story, but it's a life story. And it's life in us. So, let me pray. And when you're ready, take the Lord's Supper. Abba, Father, thank you. Your Son has lifted up favor upon us and brought it to our very face and his face. And we find acceptance through your Son, Jesus. And you have extended mercy to us. Thank you. Lord, we're going to take the bread and we're going to take the cup and we're going to remember what you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen.